money printing and the very low manufactured low interest rate environment that we're in have created uncertainty, created short-term thinking, and have pushed investors to look for lower capital intensive businesses. And what that's meant over the last 10 years is that we've been, this has been going on more than 10 years, but in the last 10 years, we've been really underinvesting in the infrastructure that we need to build a more sustainable economy. You're about to hear my conversation with John Cook. We talk about the difference between capital and money and why capital is so important to the environmental movement. We talk about the current COVID-19 induced lockdown and its impact on the environment, both long-term and short-term. And we spend some time clarifying all of the acronyms surrounding SRI and ESG in the investment space. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with John Cook. John is the president and CEO of Greenship Financial. Greenship is a firm that's been investing in the global environmental space since 2007, and they sub-advise the McKenzie Global Environmental Fund. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, glad to be here. I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with your background, John. Um, how did you get started in the investment management business, and how did you end up as uh, in your current role? I'm not sure you, uh, if you remember Chauncey Gardner, that famous character from that movie, being there. But I, I, I hate looking back at my career because it has absolutely no logic to it. Um, I was working <laughs> in Australia. I was working in Australia for a property management firm, and somebody said, um, you know, the the money is really in office leasing. So when I came back to Toronto about a year out of university, I got a job in office leasing. And uh, five years in, I ended up moving to uh, entrepreneurs that had just started a mutual fund company. This is in 1990. Um, oh, wow. And uh, shortly after moving them into one of the buildings that I was working on, uh, they asked if I would join the firm. So 1990 was uh, really when I started in the business. I didn't have a finance background at that time. And we built uh, that company. It was called BPI. Um, into a, a good size uh, mutual fund company by '99, and it was uh, it was sold, and um, and I ended up uh, taking a job with uh, actually as the head of Invesco Canada, um, and was there for a couple of years uh, trying to build the institutional business. You may recall that company uh, acquired Trimark Investments when I was yeah. there. Um, when uh, I arrived home one day and one of my neighbors, a guy named Dr. John Evans, was standing in my driveway. And this is the prime minister Canada never had. And he told me about his vision for Mars, um, a not for profit uh, that was being set up to improve commercialization of science in Ontario. And I literally couldn't say no to this guy. So my career took a real uh, sideways turn. Um, and I started there the first day I'll never forget was September 11th, 2001. So it was quite a day oh, wow. and sure. I wondered what I was doing. And over the next five years, learned all about the incredible science that exists in Canada and the convergence of various types of sciences. 
And so when my five years ended there, um, I decided to join a small environmental private equity firm called Investico. And uh, two years later, um, we founded Greenchip. Greg Payne, my current business partner, and I founded Greenchip out of Investico, this environmental private equity shop. And uh, we're still all co-located together. And so 13 years later, um, you know, I suspect that Greenchip will probably be what I do for the rest of my life. That's excellent. It sounds like Greenship is actually, you say it's a bit of a random career, and I agree, but it seems like Greenship is actually marrying your um, financial experience with the science uh, from Mars in some ways would be my guess. So um, very interesting. I'd love to dive more into what you do at Greenship um, and, uh, and how you approach investing. Uh, first, tell me how you define the universe. It's a global environmental fund. What does that mean? One of the first challenges, um, I think when you look at our biggest um, sustainability challenges or clean air, clean water, you know, soil that, that is productive and can grow food and so on, it almost always comes back to how we produce and consume energy. And so when you're looking at a universe of businesses that have solutions to these problems, they're on one side companies that, um, you know, help us produce energy in a more sustainable way. The obvious place are sort of wind and solar and renewable energy plays. But there's there's in traditional energy, the extraction of fossil fuels and whatnot, there's there's ways to do that more efficiently and cleaner as well. And then on the other side, how we consume it, uh, there are tremendous opportunities that most don't think about from, you know, pressure recapture, heat recapture, the mm. combination of um, power management, um, semiconductors with variable speed motors, and, and that those two uh, technologies coming together to improve HVAC systems and buildings, the way we light our buildings. It's, it's that, that technological combination that makes refrigerators and um, you know, household appliances more efficient, make the electric vehicle possible. So it's it's a pretty broad uh, group of applications. We've identified about 700 businesses right now that currently sell products and services that fall into those two sort of sides of the universe. Great. So it sounds like a real focus on um, both the extraction of energy and also the use of energy. Um, in, in various ways. You, you mentioned 700 businesses uh, that are in your universe. How do you make that selection from the 700 down to the portfolio that you have, which is a fairly concentrated portfolio? Well, let me go back for one sec to the, the 700 because it gives you an idea sure. of the growth. Um, when we started, um, you know, go back to the private equity company, we were tracking listed businesses at the time to just get an idea of takeout valuations. And we had about 250 to 300 companies in our space. And one of the first things Greg and I did was pull together a group of experts in traditional energy, um, uh, an engineer, uh, and a few others to help us define 
you know, the, the complicated parts of this, would we include nuclear energy? Uh, what about rail transportation? Because much of, right. of rail transportation was moving coal and so on. And so we really in the early days defined what would fit and what wouldn't. And um, we've probably uh, found about a thousand businesses uh, over the time, but some of them have gone bankrupt. Several of them, you know, over a hundred have been taken out. And so the list mm-hmm. is constantly changing and it's, it's very robust. Um, but uh, about seven trillion in market cap, but it's quite different from the broader economy. So I just wanted to go back to how we kind of got to those seven hundred businesses. Oh, interject with a question. So you said you went from two two hundred and fifty. That was back in two thousand and five ish. Is that about uh, no, right? No, that's about two thousand and seven. Two thousand and seven. Okay, to seven hundred. Has that growth in your universe been through you expanding what you're looking for? Or has it been more businesses that are coming focused on what you've always been looking for? It's both. Um, there's certainly been lots of new businesses in our space over the you know 12 years we've been doing this. And um, uh, at the same time, I think we're, uh, you know, we've just developed our understanding of the sectors to the point where we're constantly identifying new businesses that, that probably, when I say new businesses, new universe additions that maybe have existed for some time. You, you know, you attend conferences um, and you and you meet new management teams. Uh, you're looking at a specific sector, a specific company, and you see other comparable businesses. You talk to management. They come into our office quite frequently and we always ask them, you know, who are your suppliers? And so the supply chains help the business develop um, uh, additions to the universe and so on. So the space right. is growing and we're constantly looking for new additions. Makes sense. Um, so maybe to, to go back to the uh, question previously, which is how do you take that universe and, and what what do you apply to it in order to get your portfolio? Are you looking for valuation criteria, growth prospects? What, what is it that you classify yourself as? Yeah, I think um, we we absolutely classify as traditional value managers. That would be our style. We have a global perspective in this thematic sort of universe. Um, but I think for to really understand Greenship's process, go back to our heritage coming out of private equity and trying to figure out what we think a, a business would be worth if you were a private investor in that. And so... We, uh, I believe, have longer diligence periods trying to understand sectors, business drivers, and a company specifically. We always talk to or at least meet or at least talk to managers. And, and we, we develop and rely heavily on discounted cash flow models to put a price on a business. And then when that business is trading at a, at a discount to what we think it's worth, um, you know, it has potential to go into the portfolio. And so we line up all these businesses uh, based on that discount. And we're looking, you know, the ones that are the, the low hanging fruit that end up in the portfolio, are the ones with the biggest discount. There's obviously a nod to diversification by geography, sector and business size. But it's really that um, value strategy that drives the portfolio. And, uh, you know, we have a an ESG overlay, an environmental, social, and governance overlay that um, 
you know, keeps us, we use it as a risk management tool that keeps us from, from moving companies that perform poorly in those three areas. But really, if it, if it fits in our universe and it's good value and we see upside, that's where we end up with this concentrated portfolio of 30 to 35 businesses. So I'd like to uh, take a little bit of a deeper dive on diversification that you mentioned. Uh, when we think about the universe that you're playing in, you're already fairly confined to things that are focused on environmental. So how do you think about uh, diversification given those constraints of your universe? Yeah, let me take you back a little bit to traditional general industry classifications um, and so that we move away from this uh, the definitions of environmental sectors. Uh, um, environmental theme funds tend to, like ours, tend to have um, almost no investments in finance, in healthcare, and very small allocation to consumer technology. Um, and we tend to be overweight industrials, materials, and utilities. So right from the get-go, uh, our universe is quite different from the broader economy. So it's really important within the sectors that we do invest that we find as much diversification as we can. And going back to our process, even if, uh, say, renewable equipment manufacturers uh, showed the best value, the greatest discount between where they're trading and the price we think they're worth, um, we would make sure that we were allocating uh, other parts of the portfolio to offset that risk. Um, so one of the great offsets to the, uh, in that specific example to the equipment manufacturers, utilities that have very, uh, steady cash flow production are not as cyclical. And, um, so that's one of the offsets we can use as an example. We're very careful around geographic, uh, diversification. Interestingly, we found less great green businesses and to be honest, better valuations in Europe and Asia versus the United States. So while the broader MSCI World Index might be 60% allocated to the United States, we've rarely been over uh, 30% since we started. I can't actually think of a period we were over 30%. So you think about what's been driving the broadest market over the last 10 years. It's been financials and healthcare and consumer technology, those FANG stocks plus Microsoft. This has not been where we invest. And um, so, you know, we have managed to do all right versus the broader index. But um, but I think when you look at where our fund invests, one, it offers great. It's not just the diversification that we can put into the fund. I think a fund like ours, these environmental theme funds offer great diversification away from the lower capital intensive sectors and the growth and momentum strategies that have really driven financial markets in the last decade. That's an interesting uh, point on the use of capital and capital intensity. And certainly if you look at the other markets, what's been driving them has been, uh, as you pointed out, the FANG stocks plus Microsoft, you know, aside from Apple, they don't really produce widgets. It's, it's all about um, fairly light capital intensive. Um, and if you think of where traditionally capital has been put to work, that's been areas of the economy that have been uh, a little bit less strong traditionally. Um, 
So I guess maybe in light of that, and given the fact that your companies are capital intensive, how beneficial has the fact that uh, money is effectively uh, the lowest that it's ever been priced uh, through interest rates? Uh, how important is that? How much of a, a tailwind is that for your space? Uh, it's not. This is counterintuitive, but it is not a tailwind at all for our space. So we just talked about what's been driving financial markets for the last 10 years. I would argue, and certainly Greg Payne, my economist uh, partner, would argue that money printing and um, the, the very low manufactured, low interest rate environment that we're in have created uncertainty, created short-term thinking, and have pushed investors to look for uh, lower capital intensive businesses. And what that's meant over the last 10 years is that we've been, this has been going on more than 10 years, but in the last 10 years, we've been really under investing in the infrastructure that we need to build a more sustainable economy. So it has not helped. Now on the, on the flip side of that, it has created fantastic valuations for these businesses that we think long-term are so important. And let's just touch on COVID for a minute because I think the last uh, you know, four or five months are showing us what's really important uh, in our economy, supply chains and the ability to manufacture what we really need and grow food that we need to eat and so on. And, um, and you know, yet we've met this challenge with uh, even more free money. As um, Greg always tells me, you can print money, but you can't print capital. And unless we save more, which is the only way that you can actually uh, actually develop more capital, it's the flip side of capital, we're not going to get to a more sustainable economy. And so it is counterintuitive, but low interest rates and uh you know, money printing has really distorted so much in the economy. And it's almost like if we were to create a manifesto about our business, it would be, you know, this is where these more sustainable places that we're investing in, this is where we really believe capital investment needs to go. And uh, so it's, to be honest, it's been a challenging 10 years uh, for our space. And, um, Good on our team, I guess, for being able to find uh, value and, and produce uh, good returns out of this period. But I have to believe that, uh, you know, that the next 10 years will be better for Green Chip's thesis overall than the last 10 years has been. So we touched on interest rates there. And, and you're right, it is counterintuitive that that has been, call it a headwind, not a tailwind. Um, maybe we're talking about covid brought it out to fiscal side. Um, I'm seeing reports that there's $10 trillion globally uh, from governments that's being injected into economies. Uh, depending on where you are in the globe, uh, certain governments are more favorable to environmental spending than others. Um, how much of a, uh, how important is that government spending to the overall development of your space? Um, and uh, and how much of that ten trillion dollars uh, would you expect to find its way into the space? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, most of the investments in our space are going to be related to uh, infrastructure, renewable energy, uh, power systems, you know, electricity transmission, um, 
projects related to public transportation and mass transit, like trains and subways and so on. That's where, that's where long-term government spending would go in our space. Uh, shorter term, some of it may go to building efficiency and retrofitting homes. And this is a good way to get people back to work very quickly. Um, if you look at, you know, some of the allocations in Europe and South Korea, they, they are definitely um, coming with a, a green lens or a more sustainable lens. And we've seen in Canada, I, I think a lot of the initial fiscal uh, investment has been to, you know, help keep people at home and keep some income going. Um, but, but there were signs, uh, some of the, uh, investment that was, was sent to Alberta was for well cleanups. And there's no doubt the current Canadian government has propensity to, um, uh, you know, to make a, to invest in a more sustainable future. How much, what, like what the total, you mentioned 10 trillion. Right. I don't know how much it's going to be or what the percentage will be, but I think there's going to be this trade off of, um, how much governments want to invest in the long term versus the short term. I will say this. It is very clear we have about 10 years to get ourselves on a more sustainable path to reduce greenhouse gas, gas emissions. And uh, so, boy, I hope um, our governments do take this, uh, you know, investment in a more sustainable economy more seriously. Now, that said... Uh, we really try to invest where economics drive capital investment. And sometimes governments can come in and distort, uh, you know, which industries are receiving funds and which aren't. And uh, so our, our, I guess, knee jerk is to try and invest in areas where the economics are good enough that we don't need government investment. And so, uh, as an example, investments in the last four four years, each of the last four years in renewable energy have outpaced uh, investments in, you know, coal, natural gas, hydro, nuclear, all other forms of electricity production. And that's all been driven uh, by or increasingly driven by economics. We're really at a point where we don't need government subsidies to do that. So government subsidies would be a good thing, but the economics have driven the, the transition. Makes sense. Um, I guess just to, to circle back to uh, some of the investing principles, we've talked a lot about the environmental side. Obviously, that's where you're you're focused. Um, one of the acronyms that's uh, used frequently is ESG, where uh, E is environmental, S social, G for governance. How much does social and governance uh, play into your process, and and how do you think about that? When I look at your portfolio. Uh, you have fairly significant allocations to Asia. You have significant allocations to smaller companies. They tend to be a little bit more problematic on the social and governance side. So how do you, how do you handle some of those issues? Yeah, let me clarify the difference. Just because there's E and ESG, uh, I think um, a lot of investors believe that we're an ESG fund and there's confusion around these labels. Maybe we should talk about that. But, but ESG is a set of metrics to sure. um, outline the, the performance of it's really a behavioral study. And for us, it's always been sort of risk management. ESG metrics are good risk management, but ESG doesn't drive our process. As I said, we're looking for what a business produces and sells. And so, uh, you know, arguably a company like Amazon or one of the banks might have a high ESG score, but really there's nothing 
the, about what ES, what Amazon produce and sell or, you know, any of the banks in Canada produce and sell that have anything to do with solving environmental challenges. So this behavior versus the products that they sell is the important differentiator between ESG as a strategy and an environmental thematic manager like Greenchip. So that said, we do use ESG. We look at, at businesses' behavior along these ESG um, uh, metrics to try and reduce risk in the portfolio. And we in, use an internal traffic-like standard. So if a company is green and it goes through our process, it finds its way into our portfolio, it means that it has uh, fairly good ESG characteristics. If we have a you know, social or governance issue, or even an environmental issue, um, it may get a yellow or a red. And a yellow, if it if we don't see a path to getting to green, or we see a red, it certainly doesn't find its way into the portfolio. So that's how we integrate it into what we do. But I, I don't want investors to think of green chips or the McKinsey Environmental Equity Fund as a uh, an ESG fund, because it's so much more than that. Right. So uh, far more focused on um, investing in areas that uh, help on the environmental side. Um, you, you mentioned uh, pre, in one of your previous comments that we have about 10 years, in your opinion, to, to really address this in a meaningful way. Sorry, let me correct you, Matt. It's not my opinion. That's scientists' opinion. Please. And the science is very clear. And that's really important because there's there's lots of of people like myself that work in this space that, um, you know, we shouldn't be claiming that we know any better than anybody else. Um, what's going on with our, you know, the environment and climate. We really need to listen to the science and the science is telling us, you know, we've got 10 years to get on the right path. It's an important point of clarity. So thank you for that. So the the 10 years, what so let's assume that um, that we are 10 years ahead and we're looking backwards and we have gotten on the right track. Uh, what would have to unfold during those 10 years? What types of investments would we be making um, and where are the areas of focus like clearly climate and uh, emissions is a big one, but maybe a little bit more granular, a little bit more what you're thinking. Sure. Uh, it's a, that's a great question. So we're investing about uh, 300 billion a year right now in renewable energy. Um, we need to get that to about 800 billion a year um, over the next 25 years. So over the next 10, we've got to see a much uh, steeper path between 300 billion and 800 billion. That's just for renewable energy. We would need to get um, overall investments in our the capital infrastructure of the efficiency economy um, from about 800 billion to two and a half trillion a year. And these numbers that I'm giving you, they're well documented by the International Energy Agency, um, OECD. You know, there, there may be slight variations, but as a whole, Let's say that our space has about 800 billion and we need to get it to two and a half trillion dollars a year. So, uh, you know, that 1.7 trillion gap, uh, is the difference between having a, a future world that's less than two degrees of warming since, you know, in pre-industrial levels 
And I think the other way to look at it is our children and grandchildren having any kind of a sustainable economy to which they can build their careers on. So it is all about capital investment. And while there are lots of new emerging technologies, the technologies are, are there right now. Uh, this is just about investors getting themselves steeled to allocate to this space. And um, this is why we think it's so important. And I, I strongly believe the investment returns are going to be there. Um, to be more granular than that, sure. I would break it down by the 300 billion going to renewable energy gets eight. That, that part, that's where most associate. The other investments are going to be in uh, efficiencies in buildings, so uh, more efficient HVAC systems, heating and cooling buildings, more efficient lighting, the movement from uh, fluorescent lights and incandescent lights to LED lights and, and building systems, computer systems and algorithms that manage that whole energy more efficiently. In our factories, it's going to be the implementation of robotics and uh, uh, all sorts of ways to manipulate data to produce more with less. A lot of it is related to this combination of power management semiconductor and variable speed motors that run the robotics and the blowers and stampers and conveyor belts you see in factories. We're going to see that transition from, uh, in, you know, the internal combustion engine car to uh, more electric vehicles. And I think that's going to play out slower. So 10 years out, I don't think there will be the, um, you know, the level of EVs that we need. So it's really important we improve investments in uh, mass transit in um, you know, bus lines and, and trains and, uh, and subways. So those are some of the bits, but there is efficiency to be found almost everywhere we use energy right now. Certainly, I didn't even touch on water or our food systems. Um, so there you go. Long answer, but it's uh, it's very complicated and the opportunities are immense. That's uh, that long, but good. Uh, it's always great to, to hear about good opportunities in lots of places. It sounds like for you to investigate and and invest. Um, COVID, we've mentioned a couple of times. One of the uh, side effects of COVID is what we've seen um, certainly some forms of urban pollution uh, come down. Uh, you've seen a disruption, call it, in the energy markets because uh, of demand for oil coming down. Um, maybe a two-part question. First, what do you think the probability is that the uh, peak of greenhouse gas emissions uh, is in the past now? Because when we come back, uh, we, we we won't return to the same level as we previously were. Um, and then maybe the second part is, you know, is is this impact in any way, shape or form uh, helpful in the long term or is it really just a momentary impact? Uh, let me let me answer the first one. Um, the, the connection between greenhouse gas emissions and our, our extraction and use of fossil fuels is just completely tied at the hip. And it's tied. It's it's mostly tied at the hip of economic growth, too. So. Yes, it's been glorious to have clear air and whatnot. And, and, you know, if you live in Mumbai or Beijing, it's, it's far more noticeable than it would be for us in Canadian city. But, um, right. The flip side of, of that is that we've had this tremendous economic slowdown. 
And so I think that it is helping show voters that clean air, clean food, clean water and whatnot are really important and are worth investing in. But we also need people to be working. And so um, let's hope we're back to consuming more energy. And the key is to invest enough in our system so that the way that we consume that energy is more efficient in the future. Let me just put some numbers to this. So in the worst hit areas when of COVID, when you know, Wuhan was at its worst or New York City was at its worst. We saw electricity decline, demand declines of 15 to 20 percent in those regions. Same in Italy. Um, those are starting to come back. And uh, and so the International Energy Agency believes that, um, you know, demand declines year over year for 2020 will be, you know, five to eight percent for let's say that's for oil, but fairly similar for electricity too. That will be very similar to greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, you know, I read an article this morning that greenhouse gas emissions for the year will probably be down five to 8%. It depends how quickly the economy returns. So is this peak greenhouse gas uh, emissions this year? Possibly, but it, it, you know, I kind of hope not in a way because um, because it will mean that the economy is not getting back to where it needs to be quickly enough. But as I said, I think it's helping people understand this connection and hopefully investors realize and governments realize that it's worth investing in the system, the infrastructure that we need to um, do what we do more efficiently, at least do it with more renewable energy and less fossil fuels. So the, the, maybe, maybe just, the flip side of that, because I think it's an important thought as well, is let's say we are down 15% in the hardest hit areas in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Well, that still means that we're producing 85% more emissions than we need to produce to get to net zero. And so you think of all the cars sitting in garages and airplanes mm -hmm. that have been grounded, and we're still producing 85% of the emissions that we somehow need to get rid of, this is a very, very complicated problem. And uh, I don't have all the answers, but I am quite certain that capital investment is a really important part of the solution. Do you feel, so, so given that, and, and, and your point is well taken, that there's um, a massive uh, slowdown or stoppage of the economy with all of these um, activities that have been ground to a halt, and we're still eighty-five percent more emissions, whatever that number is. It's 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 very large. Um, is it possible for us to get to a uh, a carbon neutral world or greenhouse gas neutral world um, where we still have the same lifestyle, same level of activity, travel, that type of thing? Well, this probably sounds simplistic, but it, that is that is the challenge of our time. Um, I was listening to Jared Diamond speak a few weeks ago, right. and he said, he said, you know, just this is the guy who wrote Guns, Germs and Steel famously and written a number of books He's on on pandemics and whatnot. And he said, let's be clear. COVID is nothing compared to the dangers that climate change faces, you know, lies in front of us. 
it is just a massive problem. And I can get really depressed about it quickly, or I can say, let's start investing in what we know we need to invest in and, and try our best to get there. And so I can, I can be optimistic and say, we got a, we got a chance. Um, or I can look at it and, you know, just start to cry. But I, I think if we don't invest more, it's pretty clear we'll have no chance. So Matt, that's, that's the best answer I can give you. I want to circle back to uh, something that we mentioned earlier, which was the acronym ESG. Um, I have a bit of a confession. Uh, I'm in the, uh, the the place where I'm uh, representing your product, uh, and I am always confounded and confused by an alphabet soup of acronyms that surrounds <laughs> this space. So I'm hoping that you can help clarify some of these things. Are you game? Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So let's start first with. Uh, ESG and 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 not just define the acronym, but like what does it mean to an investment strategy or product or or that type of thing? ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it really is a process of of ascribing ratings or a grade to companies' behavior based on their environmental, social, or governance behavior, the way that they, the way that they uh, run their business. Okay. And, and what about SRI? SRI stands for socially responsible investing. Um, if in, in terms of taxonomy, I would put SRI at the highest level, the highest labeling of everything in our space, the thematic, the, the ESG strategies, the impact um, investing and so on. So SRI, socially responsible investment to me is the highest order label. Um, okay. And how about, uh, you mentioned impact investing. What, what does that mean? Impact investing technically is an investment where you have both a financial and a measurable impact return. And it's the measurable impact return part that's really important to uh, whether something should be considered impact or not. Okay. Um, how about uh, uh, PRI, like UNPRI and Principles of Responsible Investing? What does that refer to? Yeah, it's a, it's a uh, structure that asset managers can sign up to, um, to a, a program to uh, follow a set of steps to uh, ensure that they are um, effectively of being responsible investors. And so it's a designation. You sign up for it and, uh, you know, you can advertise that you're a signatory to it as an asset management firm or an asset owner and that you're following principles of responsible investment. Well, ones that I missed, I guess that would be uh, what you think are, are most meaningful. I think we've, I think we've covered, to be honest, the, the most meaningful ones, um, there's the carbon disclosure project, um, the task force on climate related financial disclosure, TCFD. All these things to me, these acronyms do become, as you say, an, an alphabet soup. I think that, uh, where it upsets me the most is the confusion that it's leaving at the investor level that, uh, terms like ESG are used synonymously with 
SRI, socially responsible investing as sort of this high order level. And, and frankly, mutual fund companies and other, um, you know, banks and so on use these labels interchangeably. Um, unfortunately can confuse the investor. So an investor that wants an environmental theme fund like the McKenzie Global Environmental uh, Equity Fund may uh, decide to invest or compare that fund to uh, an ESG fund, which looks very much like a traditional index. And it doesn't help get more capital um, to the solutions that I talked about earlier. And it doesn't give them the diversification that I believe they need away from this economy that's very fossil based that we're transitioning away from and is going to face headwinds. So there is more um, work being done to try and reduce the confusion. But the alphabet soup is problematic to me. I couldn't agree more. Um, so, and just to summarize, then SRI would be the highest order where um, every sort of product that takes a socially responsible view would fit under that. ESG is a little bit more focused on the environmental, social, and governance. And then, sort of, in the impact investing or thematic investing, um, that's where something like your fund would would uh, would fall. These are investments with very specific goals, specific capital allocation uh, criteria. Is that fair? Have I summarized it reasonably well? I would add one clarification. So if SRI is the highest order level, when you get down uh, below that and you talk about ESG, that's focusing much more on the behavior of companies. So it's a much broader investment universe. All companies, you can measure their behavior based on environmental, social and governance factors. When you're talking about thematic, it's much more about what companies produce and sell. And when you're talking about impact, you're actually looking for measurable impact that that investment is making. Thank you very much for that. That was helpful for me. Um, we always uh, finish these podcasts with a series of recommendations. Uh, so I'll, I'll uh, throw a couple of subjects your way and, and let me know uh, uh, what you think. So uh, maybe take me through some of your favorite books. Oh, oh I, I uh, pick up books and put them down frequently. Um, I in, in our space, there's two books that have stuck with me in the last 10 years. Um, uh, one is just simply called Energy by uh, an author, Richard Rhodes, which is a great history of the development of energy and energy efficiency technologies. And um, uh, Oxford economist Dieter Helm wrote a book about four years ago called Oil's Endgame. And if you're trying to figure out what's going on with oil in COVID, and we all know that you know, oil went in a negative pricing recently and demand is way down, uh, that's a fantastic book. Um, but just on a, you know, I'm currently reading, uh, the life and times or the, I think it's the adventures of Pierre, Pierre Esprit Radisson, uh, Mark, uh, Bourri wrote it, won the Taylor prize, the sort of history of this amazing pre-Canadian French Canadian who, uh, you know, was kidnapped by Iroquois Indians in the mid 1600s and escaped and went back to Europe. And he ended up dining with both the French and English king at the time. And then coming back to Canada, he was one of the founders of the Hudson's Bay Company. Really interesting book. So there you go. There's three. 
Perfect. Thank you. Um, maybe to, to tack on to the, your first uh, couple of books, who, who are your favorite thinkers uh, in your space? Like uh, think of journalists, columnists, um, if, if uh, more of a lay person wanted to keep up to date in that space, where would you, where would you point them? For this is not a thinker, this is more a group, but as a um, statistical set of data, I think the International Energy Agency website is just a treasure trove of um, insights into what's going on and everything into everything I've discussed. And uh, I would say the same, actually, for those that live in Canada about the independent electricity system operator, the IESO website. Um, in terms of thinkers about our space, um, there's, there's a Canadian private equity manager named Tom Rand who works out of Mars, um, who I love listening to him. He's so enthusiastic. Um, it's probably not fair to Tom that I say when he can't defend himself that he's maybe overly enthusiastic about technologies that are developed developing but and then yeah but you know you need to be if you're in if you're a venture investor and then i i I have to say my business partner greg Payne, who's a you know phd economist my god this guy is he's just such an interesting thinker and uh you know, when I talk about doing what I do for the rest of my career, a, a good chunk of that is because of the people I work with. It's not just Greg, Julie Ambisher and whatnot, but boy, this guy's smart. And uh, it's hard to argue with much of what he says. Perfect. Um, how about your favorite movies? Everybody's uh, looking for uh, the next movie on Netflix uh, in, in lockdown. Where would you steer them? <laughs> Well, you know, I'll go back to where I started with Chauncey Gardner and being there, the old Peter Sellers movie. Um, I just think it's a classic, this idea of somebody who's quite simple, you know, lucking his way through life and ending up being an advisor to presidents. Um, another one, you know, the I think it was called The Hundred Year Old Man Who Stepped Out the Window. I don't know whether you're familiar with that, that book, but um, just this idea that you know, no. uh, we like Forrest Gump, that we can find ourselves living this life that's so uncertain in such interesting ways. I find those movies or books very, uh, very interesting. Perfect. Uh, final one for you. Um, we uh, were in Ontario. Um, the uh, the lockdown has extended for the GTA and, and uh, Niagara region. Uh, what are you most looking forward to uh, once it's lifted? Uh, what are you looking forward to doing? Um, you know, it, I think it's almost unfair for me to answer this question personally, because, you know, it, it, for some reason, it hasn't been so hard on me. I, my One of my best friends in, in my life has two children that are really challenged, and he and his wife are sort of locked up trying to take care of these two kids. Um, with, uh, that have significant challenges with no home care. And boy, I can hardly wait till, you know, he's able to get these kids back to school. And I would say the same for, you know, a, a woman who works in our firm who's, who's got a couple kids at home. It's those people. That's what I look forward to is, is those people getting their lives back to where they really need to be. It's been exceedingly tough on many people beyond me. 
John, thanks very much for for the conversation. Uh, I found it inspirational, uh, your devotion to putting capital to work uh, to change uh, the world effectively uh, is uh, is remarkable and notable. And uh, and thanks very much for spending the time. Thank you. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 